talk about that. We talked about that last night, but just so you know, um, was it 504 years ago today, uh, Luther decided to post something on Facebook or something, and <laughs> changed everything. But we are in uh, Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at the entire chapter, and um, I don't know if you recall, but I, I had uh, mentioned before uh, starting this series, in anticipation of it, that it is a goal of mine that as we examine the Revelation, it would not just become a sensational pursuit of events and what have you, but that would be very ministerial. And um, I have to say, I don't know if there was ever a week in my studies where I have been as ministered to as I was this week in studying this chapter, and it certainly is my prayer that at some level this is conveyed to you as we examine Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, hear now the word of God. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation." And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down, and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine these words, they would reach deep into our hearts, 
that we at some level would begin to grasp what it means to behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, what that meant to John, what it meant to those original seven churches to whom it was originally conveyed, and what it should mean to us in transforming our entire outlook of our lives and of the very creation. So we do pray, Father, that you would grant us the wisdom to see these glorious things through Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, in chapter 4, if you recall correctly, we were given a vision of the throne room of God. And we saw there the praise of the heavenly host. Now, the heart of that praise revolved around God as creator. For you are the creator of all things, was the chorus we heard sung. And because he was creator, he is worthy to receive praise and honor and glory and power, for he created all things, and by him all things exist. But we need to understand something that the mere acknowledgement of the existence of a God who created all things is not necessarily good news for the creation. Because of sin, there's a great divide. If we're left merely with chapter 4, we have a serious problem. There is a, according to the Scriptures, really from cover to cover. There's a hostility. There's an enmity between the creature and the creator. There's a need for reconciliation. Something needs to take place in order for chapter 4 to not be a nightmare to the creation. We, as sinful creatures, are in capable of achieving this, this reconciliation, in every conceivable way. We are totally incapable. Every aspect of who we are. According to our nature, it's not something we even want to achieve. achieve. And even if we wanted to achieve it, according to our nature, we have not the capacity to achieve it. So even if, for some reason, the fall did not affect us in such a way as to have the hostility toward God, even if we were to sit here going, well, no, I want things to be right, we don't have what it takes to make it right. We need help. We need to be delivered. We need redemption. I mean, this is the theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We need a Messiah. We need a deliverer. In chapter 4, John beholds a throne. But in chapter 5, something happens that causes John to weep. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one 
in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much. I can't help but think of the emotional roller coaster the Apostle John had been on. I mean, he's at the bosom of Jesus at the Last Supper. He, he uh, identifies himself as the one, the Apostle whom Jesus loved. But then in Revelation chapter 1, seeing the glorified Christ, he falls down as if dead. Then in chapter 4, he sees the throne room of God. And then in chapter 5, he sees something that causes him to weep. And in the Greek, this is not just a little tear. This is much wailing. He's wailing almost inconsolably. And the wailing is based upon the prospect that no one is able to open a scroll. Similar to the kingdom of God itself, not only are there limitations in terms of opening it, they can't even look at it, right? Remember Jesus in John chapter 3? You can't enter the kingdom of God. You can't even see it. We see the same thing about this scroll. Not only can nobody in all of creation open it, nobody can even look at it. The scroll, we are told, is in the right hand of God, indicating God's power, God's priority. The right hand of God is something very unique in Scripture in terms of the power of God. And similar to the Ten Commandments, it's written on the inside and on the back, both sides, which would be unique for a scroll, indicating that there is a fullness involved. At some level, this is exhaustive. There, there's no more place to write. It's been written on entirely. And it's sealed with seven seals, indicating that it's already been written but it has not been unsealed. Over 500 years earlier, Daniel was told, seal the book until the time of the end. And now we see it unsealed. By the way, not at the end of history, but here. It is here that we see the seals opened. Well, similar to a lot in Revelation, there's a great deal of speculation as to what this scroll is. I mean, it seems like it's a big deal, right? The scroll causing the apostle to weep. Well, let me just go over a little bit of what people say, and I think there's a little bit of truth in a lot of these positions, but I think it's important for us to kind of go, well, what is this scroll? Because the scroll is going to open up, and it's going to be really the rest of the revelation. It most certainly contains the unknown future, right? We're in Roman numeral three of the outline of Revelation, the things which will take place after these things. It's certainly that. So it's, at least to the, to the creature, it's the unknown future. It also has the characteristics of a will. In Rome, this idea of seals was attached to a legal document so seven seals would be the idea that this is something recognized officially, generally a last will and testament. And that kind of brings us to Hebrews 9, 
Well, we recognize that in Christ's death, we come to inherit. So you've got this idea that as this scroll is opened, it's revealing an inheritance. Some people believe that the scroll is the Old Testament. And we see this this picture of this in, in Luke 4, where Jesus goes into the temple and he begins to read Isaiah. And then he tells them, in your presence, this reading the Old Testament has been fulfilled. Kind of reminds us of our series, you know, on on how Christ is found in Route 66 in the entirety of the Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi, it's all about Christ. So I, I think there's merit to that position. I think there's a little less merit to the position. Some people hold that it's lamb, the Lamb's book of life. It's the people who are the elect. I, I don't really see that there. But the fifth chapter of Revelation has a strong resemblance to the second chapter of Ezekiel. If you recall, I had mentioned earlier that there is no book in the New Testament that has any, as many allusions, not even close to the Old Testament, as the Revelation. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So in order to understand Revelation, you've got to kind of understand the Old Testament. And so you're kind of going, where, where do we see something that looks like this in the Old Testament? And we find it in the second chapter of Ezekiel, where there is a scroll. And on that scroll, it's written on the front and the back, just like this scroll. And that passage in Ezekiel is talking about the judgment of Israel. And it is a passage that speaks of lamentations and woes. And so when we look at the rest of Revelation, we go, wow, this is, this is very similar to what we read of in Ezekiel. Keeping in mind this, as we try to unpack what this scroll is, that in all creation, heaven, earth, under the earth, is just another way of saying everything. No one is able to open the scroll. And that the worthiness to open the scroll is based upon the redemptive victory of Christ on the cross. You are worthy to open the scroll because you were slain. And so we're kind of going, well, what did that produce? What what did the death and resurrection of Christ produce as it pertains to the scroll? Well, just to sum this up, those are kind of the way, and I think there's a little bit of Truth a little to be extracted from most of those positions. I would argue that the scroll is revealing Christ's righteous, authoritative, and active role in the course of history, especially as it pertains to judicial and redemptive events that will soon take place, as we read in Chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, some things are about to happen. And what we see in this scroll is Christ having the power and the authority to participate as King of kings and Lord of lords of redemptive, saving people's souls, and judicial, judging the enemies of Christ's church. Well, let's go back to John a little bit. You know, 
Where is John coming from? John is a prisoner for his faith on this rocky, barren island of Patmos. So things, he's not really enjoying the creature comforts of the Christian faith. It's not as if in this world, his Christian faith has given him the advantage over other people in a day-to-day way. He's in prison. It's barren. And and he, he has this vision, and he starts weeping. And I would argue what he's doing here is he's weeping at the prospect of a course of history with no aim, no victory, and where nobody is able to turn this world around. He, he's on this rocky, barren soil for his faith. And then he's kind of going, well, I kind of thought things would get better. And now you're telling me nobody can open the scroll. Nobody can turn it around. I don't want to sound overly corny here. And I know I'm dating myself. But it made me think of uh, The Sound of Music. Just for the sake, how many of you have actually seen The Sound of Music? Oh, I'm so encouraged. (laughs) You know, it came out in the 60s. It was only about 20 years after World War II ended. And so, you know, it was still pretty fresh in the minds of of people. But there's a scene where, you know, Captain Von Trapp is, he's, he's musing over the notion that Austria, which Robert Wise, the director, portrayed so beautifully. I mean, I mean that, the cinematography in that movie, in terms of Austria, is just amazing, right? But he's sitting there amusing over the prospect of the Nazis taking over Austria, right? And so he's kind of lost, and somebody says, where are you? And he goes, in a world that is disappearing, I'm afraid. And, you know, I mean, this idea that, you know, our, we're, we're gonna, this beautiful land, we're going to lose it. I, I know a lot of you feel the same way about America. We kind of feel like in a very short period of time, we're very concerned about the direction this nation is taking and what we're leaving to our children. So you understand the thinking behind going, I thought things might go in a different direction. But what I'm looking at here is no one can open the scroll. There's no hero. There's no champion. There's nobody who's going to go, yeah, I can do it. I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. But you see, it's no mere prospect of some individual nation that may not make it. Keep in mind this. John had experienced the holiness of God, the glory of God, at a level none of us have firsthand. The lightning and the thunderings and the voices. John had seen that. And now he's faced with the prospect that there is no answer to this problem of being on the wrong side of a holy God. Chapter 4 without chapter 5 is what is causing John to weep greatly. He might be feeling the deep impact of what the author of Hebrews taught. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
you might have had that experience at a level that most of us never have. John was an eyewitness of this great victory in Christ. He, he emphasizes that in his little epistles. You know, what I saw with my eyes, what I touched with my hands, very existential, very experiential. He knew the joy of it. But he's currently imprisoned and faced with the prospect of it being snuffed out. I mean, it made me think of John the Baptist, where it seemed like John the Baptist, it was very clear to John the Baptist at one point who Jesus was. Then later, he's like, should we be looking for somebody else? Like the humanity is exposed. And all of this for John with a deeper understanding of the glory and the holiness of God. I think when it gets right down to it, John, like so many of us, needed to hear the gospel. He once again needed to hear the gospel. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Again, in chapter 4, John beheld the throne, which may have provoked the weeping. But in chapter 5, we read, Behold the lion. This is not brand new for John, as if the Christian faith began 2,000 years ago, as some people wrongly suppose. What we see here is an appeal to the lion of the tribe of Judah, which goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis Chapter 49, the fourth son of Jacob, through whom the true king of kings would come. And in that passage, we learn what we are learning in the Revelation, and that is, through the lineage of Judah, evil will be overcome. Remember, that's the theme of Revelation, the triumph of Christ over all opposition and evil. We see that very same message in Genesis 49, speaking of the lion of the tribe of Judah. So this isn't new to John. John would have been a student of the Old Testament. He would have known, oh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I know the promises associated with that, with that lion. But then he goes even further. We have the root of David. Now, I don't know if that jumps out at you. I mean, it's... If you study it, it's thought to be kind of an odd statement because generally the root precedes or predates whatever it creates. In other words, Jesus is the root of David means that Jesus would have to be before David. And yet, yet David's a thousand years before Jesus. Well, we can't get into the details there, but we need to recognize this that Jesus is both David's son and David's Lord. The old covenant looked forward to Christ. The new covenant, which we are in, looks back to Christ, but we all look to Christ. It's always the same message. There's not some new message. The new 
covenant, the New Testament, is not some new message. It's the fulfillment of the old message. All looking to Christ. But there may not be. As much as we see in the New Testament, you know, in living color, the fullness of the person and work of Christ that in the Old Testament they did not see. They longed to look at, the Bible teaches us. But I have to say, there may not be a passage in all of Scripture which so beautifully anticipates what the Messiah, what the Deliverer, what the Christ will accomplish. What the Christ will reconcile as the one referenced in Revelation 5.5, going back to the root of David. And as I read that passage, and I'm going to read it to you, I was tempted to stop and talk about it. I'm going to force myself not to. Because the passage itself is glorious. So we're just going to take a minute and read the passage that is being referenced here. Keeping in mind this, Jesse, because the passage will go to Jesse. Anybody know who Jesse was? David's father. Okay. And here is what John is hearing in terms of the comfort of the one who's able to open the scrolls. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And just so you understand, this is talking of Christ. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Again, there may not be a passage in Scripture that speaks in such detailed and glorious fashion as the peace found as a result of the work of Christ. I think, it is, I think it's a mistake, and I think it's sad that many people will put that after the second coming. This is Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 9, we read of the birth of the Son. And then we move to Isaiah chapter 10, which is the judgment of the king of Assyria. And then we move into chapter 11 with the advancement of the kingdom, with, with no, no, no reference whatsoever of a second coming happening, happening at any time. 
we read a passage like that, and I'll just ask you the question, because I thought this way myself at one time. I remember reading that, thinking to myself, there is no way any of this, whether metaphorically or actually materially, could ever possibly happen unless Jesus comes again and makes it happen. That was, that's the mentality that I had, and to be honest with you, it is the dominant position. And it, re- it was revealed to me that what that was happening what was happening in my own heart was I was doubting that the power of the cross was sufficient to actually achieve what we just read. Now, over and against the premillennialist, this is not said happen after the second coming. Anywhere in your Bibles, not one place. And over and against my all-millennial friends, or at least some of them, I don't think this is all a metaphor. And even if it is a metaphor for the spiritual reconciliation between us and God, that spiritual reconciliation has an observable material outcome. Well, this is what John, he's weeping, and this is what he hears. How wonderful would that be for him? How wonderful should that be for us? How could he not help look, right? Because now he, he, heard, he hears this, right? The angel's going, don't weep. Why not the tribe of Judah? The root of David. I mean, I'm sure the angel himself, he's a strong angel, was probably pretty impressive to look at. But how could he not turn and look at this lion? How... How would this great promise that we would just read of in Isaiah chapter 11, how would that be kept? What must take place in order for the renovation of the entire earth? Which was what I would argue is happening in Isaiah chapter 11. He's like the whole cosmos is going to be changed as a result of the Spirit of the Lord upon the root of David. And I turned... And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So here again, we see this literary device of hearing and then seeing. I, just, I want to just keep reminding you of that because there'll come a time when it'll be very helpful in our understanding of the passage because the seeing elaborates what we've heard. You hear one thing and you turn and it kind of makes it a bigger picture. And what John sees, even for John, with his knowledge of this great promise that we just read part of in Isaiah 11, what he saw must have at some level been counterintuitive. The lion of the tribe of Judah, and you turn and you look, and you see something that perhaps you did not expect. You know, nations use the images of powerful animals oftentimes to kind of show their strength, right? Right? Russia has a bear. Great Britain has a a lion. France has a tiger. (laughs) 
<laughs> not to get all anti-French on everybody. The U.S. has an eagle, right? I don't know any nation that has a lamb. I don't even know of any high school right, that has a mascot. And he doesn't just see a lamb. He sees a lamb as though it had been slain. The great victory, and let's not lose this, would be achieved through obedient suffering. It would be the blood of the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And maybe when we think of that statement made by John the Baptist, we realize it maybe even goes further, the sin of the world, than my own personal sins. But the effects of the fall upon the entire created order that groans for redemption. Let's not lose sight of where and how the victory is achieved. And this whole chorus is focusing upon that. For you were slain. And that's where the singing comes from. That's what elevates the moment. The, the singing comes as a result of what is accomplished by the Lamb of God. And we also should understand this because not only is our hope there, I mean, I can imagine that John is completely transformed, right, through this event. We should be transformed through this event as he focuses and fixes his eyes upon the one who's upon the throne. Yet at the same time, you and I are called to imitate that mentality of the suffering obedience. We're supposed to understand, grasp, and walk that way ourselves. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 5, and 8 puts it this way, Have this mind in yourselves. Think this way. Have this mentality, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, which means you're talking about an ignoble, ignoble death, a shameful death. We're called to imitate that. The, the, the mentality we are to have is to have the similar mentality of Christ, and that is obedient suffering. At the same time, we need to be careful here. We need to be careful to understand that reference to the Lamb as appealing to the work of Christ as a sacrifice and not so much as an appeal to his nature. And let me explain that. Because right after that, we have the Lamb, but he's got what? Seven horns. Lambs don't normally have horns. In the Bible, a horn is a symbol of strength. Seven is kind of ultimate strength. 
So this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the Spirit of God, which I think speaks to His oneness with the Holy Spirit of both knowledge, power, the granting of life, and the overcoming of the devil. Now, I'm going to say stuff here that you're going to be like, wow, this, is, uh, well, this might be good for Q&A, but I just can't go into detail here. But it is with the coming of the Spirit, it is Christ in His oneness with the Spirit and the coming of the Spirit that we read things like this, John 12, 31, now is the judgment, now, not in some future time, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You don't hear that a lot. The ruler of this world is cast out. It is concurrent with the sending of the, quote, helper. And who's, everybody know who the helper is, right? The helper is the Holy Spirit. It is concurrent with the sending of the helper that the ruler of this world is judged. Now will the ruler of this world be judged. Friends, in chapter 12, we're going to get into the emphatic defeat of Satan. We'll touch on it a bit in chapter 20 as well. But what we all need to understand very clearly here is that when the Lamb went to the cross, was resurrected and ascended, and this shouldn't be a debate, it was the disarming of the rulers and authorities in His resurrection and ascension, Jesus currently is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Talking about the Lamb, and I, I think we need to be careful not to translate meek as synonymous with feeble. Meek is power under control. They used to use it to describe a horse that was very powerful, but was no longer wild. was able to undergo intellectual things. Keep in mind that in the very next chapter, there will be those who will seek to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. So we've got to be careful to not look at the Lamb of God in some feeble sort of way. We need to understand. I mean, I've, I've quoted this verse a thousand times, and I have to say this week it kind of hit me more than it, it's hit me in the past, that in Romans 8, in that glorious passage where nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, we are called more than conquerors. I love saying that. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. But I fear that we live as if we're barely surviving. I wonder how John must have felt when his eyes were opened to see this. And by the way, as Mike pointed out in his, uh, in his prayer, this is the event to which we are called when we come together. Can you imagine? Have you ever been in a room where people are praising God and it's just, the voices are so loud? I mean, I, sometimes when I go to these... Um, to Presbytery with all the other elders and pastors and they sing a hymn and I'm like, they might not even have a, a piano. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. And just the volume of the voices. It's like, 
you know, it makes me feel like, you know, where Paul says that, you know, making melody to one another in your heart. So there's this idea that at some level we're ministering to each other. I mean, I didn't point it out, but we see that even in the throne room. It's like, you know, when the elders do this, you know, the four living creatures do that. It's almost like this antiphonal encouragement of worship. So you wonder what it must have been like for John, you know, to kind of see and hear this. And that is that which we are invited to, that God calls us to on a weekly basis. Verse 7, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand for him who sat on the throne. Jesus takes the scroll from the Father. And I would argue that that is that which is anticipated by Daniel. Last week during Q&A, somebody kind of asked a question, like, where's Daniel, the prophecies of, of Daniel and all of this? Because Daniel, Isaiah, the Olivet Discourses, Revelation, they're all really speaking of very similar things. I think what we're seeing here, this idea that this lamb is taking the scroll is that which is anticipated by Daniel when the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and is given a kingdom that will never pass away. So Again, some people say that's the second coming. But the Son of Man, in that passage, you can read it, it's chapter 7, verse 14, the Son of Man is not coming from the Ancient of Days. He's going to the Ancient of Days. How is that the second coming? No, it is Jesus ascending and given a kingdom. And I think what we see here in Revelation chapter 5 is the fulfillment of what is anticipated in Daniel chapter 7. Now let me add something to that, and I don't know how much you're following this. But earlier in Daniel, we see Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this image. And this, this image represents four kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the, the Greeks, and the Roman Empire. And then a stone cut without hands, who everybody acknowledges to be Jesus, falls upon that image, destroys those kingdoms, and becomes a mountain and covers the entire earth. What nation was in control when Revelation was being written? Rome. It just, it should be obvious. It's not a reconstituted Roman Empire. Christ came during the Roman Empire, and the Revelation is describing what that image is going to look like when it is deposed by Christ himself. I think it's just, to be honest with you, I think it's an easy read. Well, for the remainder of the chapter, we see the response of all creation. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. One can only imagine the magnitude 
of this praise. Somebody called it the cosmic chorus. A praise which, expressed by the incense, includes the prayers of the saints. And as we look on later in chapter 6 and 8 and so forth, we're going to see something, talk about counterintuitive, we're going to see something that most of us might find very uncomfortable, and that is these prayers are prayers for God's justice. These are what they call imprecatory prayers, where they're basically kind of going, Lord, depose the evil leaders. We, we kind of, I'm, I can't get into the details of this right now, but we have to ask ourselves, why don't we pray that way? Like, we're so uncomfortable with the idea of praying that God will remove from positions of power evil people. It just, we have such a effeminate view of the Christian faith that we don't even want to do that. Let me tell you, in the, my experience in China, with the underground church in China, they have no problem doing that. Because they see what is happening to their brethren we, you know, we just, uh, we, we're very soft in terms of our understanding of the advancement of the kingdom. And here the song extends beyond the old song, this old song of creation to the new song of redemption. There's not merely one nation, as in the old covenant, but a worldwide redemption extending to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That seems normal to us, but at the time, the idea that the kingdom of God would be multinational was something that was new. It was clearly taught in the Old Testament, but it was something that it was like, what? This is going to everybody. At the same time, we're not mere spectators at this. The passage now will teach that you and I play an active role in that which is taking place. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Uh, I mean, what a powerful image we are given there. A kingdom of priests. As a kingdom of priests, and I, I can't go into detail on that. I did talk about it earlier because that topic, that phrase has come up before. We are to engage in true, godly leadership as we see Christ, the servant leader. God is determined to use his people as a kingdom of priests to not only evangelize, but most certainly first and foremost, make disciples, but also transform. 
teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. It's all over the scriptures. We don't get here and have some new thing. It's the Great Commission, and and you and I have been made a kingdom of priests. It's the priesthood of all believers. I hesitate to say this because I don't want to be overly critical, but I'm going to say it anyway. I can't be too careful. I mean, I've had people in the congregation go, why are you so nervous about saying things? I I do have a little PTSD (laughs) on this topic. Thank you, Gino. But contra premillennialism, this is something we already are and we are currently called to do. This this is not something we're going to do after the second coming as uh, the dispensationalists will say, in our headquarters from Jerusalem. This is something we currently are, and we're currently called to do. And contra some amillennialism, it is on the earth. We need to be careful to not dematerialize all of this and just have it be something that's happening in the immaterial realm. First and foremost, immaterial. But if something is happening to you spiritually, I expect that we'll see something happening observably. One other thing we want to point out here is if Christ is not God, this whole event would be blasphemous idolatry. Praise to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Really? We are to worship God And him alone do we worship. So the testimony here to the deity of Christ, the Godhood of Christ, is undeniable. And friends, if this heavenly host, including innumerable angels, I mean, we didn't even get into that, right? Thousand times a thousand, ten thousand times ten thousand, some of your versions will just say myriads. It's just this innumerable number of angels. If they are praising his holy name, how fitting that we, who are among those who have been redeemed by the blood, which I do pray includes every one of us, should worship him as well. I mean, I, I, feel like, um, I feel like our worship needs to, at some level, reveal that we are kind of getting it. The, the, uh, you know, I mean, the lethargy sometimes in our praise. One, one time, and it's not my style, our, our founding pastor, it was his style. He would do this kind of stuff. I did it one time. I was preaching on a series of sermons through the hymns that we sing. And I had studied um, A Mighty Fortress, written by Martin Luther on Psalm 46. And as I was studying it, it was revealed to me in my studies how many times that song had been sung at junctures in the life of the church where people knew they were about to die. I mean, the the door is being pounded down. You know, you think of the Titanic, right, where they're playing... What song were they playing? Yeah, and you're my God. Yeah, they're just kind of like we're going to sink and we're going to go down worshiping. 
So many times, a mighty fortress. You, you, you're about to die, but a mighty fortress is our God. And I, I don't know, I was moved, you know, by that. And we were singing it here in church. And we were singing it with such a lack of focus. If I were a coach, I would have called a timeout. And I, and I did. I don't know if you remember. I stopped it. And I'm like, oh, and this, this can't be. This is not right. We need to recognize what we're doing here. I mean, our worship should, it would, I, I don't I, you know, I mean, a joyful noise, you know. And if you've heard me saying if the noise is the right word, <laughs> but that we're just kind of like elocuting from our diaphragm, you know. <laughs> the experience of John, which brought him from weeping to this astonishing throne room of praise, has been shared with us. We've now read it. It was written, John experienced it, he shared it with those seven churches, now we have seen it. And along with John, especially during worship, we are invited to behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah. How can such an experience not fuel our, en- our engines of faithfulness? Would not John, should not all of us be bolstered in the call that we have repetitively heard already in Revelation to persevere and to overcome? And know this, that the lion, because you get this idea that this lion and the lion, I mean, they're, they're in the midst, right? They're in the midst of the 24, you know, you got the the myriads, then you've got the 24, then you've got the four, then you've got the one on the throne, and it says in the midst of this, we have this lamb. That this lion, this lamb, of whom John writes, is also the advocate on whom John leans. It's not some distant God out there. Let us appreciate more deeply when the same apostle wrote these words. Can you imagine? My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would grant us the sight the true sight of what you have revealed in this passage for the bolstering of the faith of your church, for the encouragement that though we might feel pressed down, that we might feel on all sides as if things are not working out quite the way that we want them to work out, that we, like John, who was on that rocky island, imprisoned for his faith, would be immensely encouraged to ever persevere, to ever walk in faithfulness, to ever fix our eyes upon the author and the finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.